0: This ad-free episode of NordPod was made possible by Bluebird Bio.
1: Welcome to the club that you didn't want to join. We're the voice of red disease
0: and this jingle doesn't rhyme. NordPod, NordPod, NordPod. My name is Matthew Zachary and welcome to NordPod, Right here on the Off Script Media Network. Now, I've been advocating on behalf of cancer and rare disease patients for over 20 years. Why? Because I am one. NordPod is the official podcast of the National Organization for Rare Disorders. And a quick reminder before we get started that if you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts because it helps other listeners like you discover the show. Now, Let's get started. Hello, friends, and welcome back to another exciting episode of NordPod, the voice of rare disease. Dr. Rachel Bailey joins me today on the program. She is an assistant professor of the Center for Alzheimer's and Neurodegenerative Diseases and Pediatrics at UT Southwestern Medical Center. Today's episode is all about those two magic words. No, not COVID vaccine. Those are two other magical words. I'm referring to gene therapy. Yes, Rachel and I are going to give you guys our own version of Gene Therapy 101. Growing up with a younger sibling with cerebral palsy set Rachel off in the direction she took born of that condition as a sibling and a caregiver, which explains what you'll hear her clear passion for the science. I asked her, How can we ungeek the speak? How do we explain complex information to average humans? How do we leverage empathy to improve the relationships between doctors and patients? And how optimistic should we be about the future of medicine? Spoiler alert, very optimistic. All right, let's get to it. Rachel Bailey, welcome to NordPod.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: It's a real pleasure. I couldn't help but notice you went to Rensselaer, and I went to Binghamton, so we probably have an equal affinity for Wegmans. Am I correct?
1: You are correct.
0: One of my favorite stops at Rensselaer when I visited my friends there was the gift shop, and they had a t-shirt or some kind of hoodie that said, I learned how to spell Rensselaer. (laughs)
1: Can you spell Rensselaer? I can. It's part of our first year of training. So it's R-E-N-S-S-E-L-A-E-R.
0: So it's not (laughs) W-R-E-N-Z-U-H-L. Yeah, okay. It sounds like
1: that, but no. (laughs) Uh,
0: What did you study there?
1: So I did a dual degree in biology and bioinformatics.
0: That sounds like something I would never think to do in high school. Was this part of your predispositions?
1: The bioinformatics was not. The biology was. So I have a younger brother who has cerebral palsy and his form is more severe. So I grew up helping to take care of him, go to his doctor's appointments, his physical therapy appointments, and everything like that. And I think that really helped foster a desire to help people for the interest in biology and science. And so when I went to college, I knew biology and science was the way I wanted to go. I ended up adding in the bioinformatics, but kind of found my senior year. That wasn't my love, (laughs) which is okay. I tried it.
0: How old, if I might ask, were you when your brother was first diagnosed?
1: So he is three years younger than me. So that would have occurred shortly after birth. However, it wasn't until he was closer to two years of age that my parents realized that something was wrong because he wasn't hitting his developmental milestones. So about the time I was five and on, we were aware of this was the situation and how can we make it the best that we can for him?
0: So your entire upbringing was through this lens of caregiving.
1: Definitely. And I think that's helped really, it helps me to interact with families that have children with rare diseases. I think I have a different empathy than possibly some other people do having lived that as a sibling, which is always very different living it as the patient or living it as the caregiver. It's a very complex relationship between all those factors, but it definitely builds a genuine interest to try to help people to make their lives better, their families' lives better. So yes, definitely colored it.
0: Sure. And, you know, I like to say that we're all, many of us are born of our conditions. So clearly this was possibly what you were meant to do. And I love that you mentioned empathy, because that could be a whole other show, clearly. (laughs) Uh, you shouldn't have to have a sibling with this to develop empathy, but you know I want to get into. Yes, I was stalking you because i was supposed to, but I was traversing your Carmen San Diego-like ventures around the, the country: South Carolina, Minnesota, Florida, North North, North <laughs> Carolina, Utah. I, I just I have to hear like clearly. You went to these places to further your education and your pedagogy and your skills and your your knowledge. What were the benefits and maybe downsides of constantly traversing the States?
1: I would say, I mean, downside is more from a personal where, you know, you pick up and go and you make new friends as you move around. But career wise, that's actually has been hugely beneficial because it gives me the chance to go to different academic institutions and get mentorship from different walks of scientists, clinicians, people with very vastly different experiences that, you know, when you go into science, it actually tends to be a very mentoring field. You're always thinking about how do we educate the next generation and to teach. So it's been hugely beneficial for me to learn from each of these places. So I did my undergraduate at Rensselaer, and then I actually ended up, you know, working as a laboratory technician at the University of South Carolina, and then later at the Mayo Clinic in Florida. And it was at the Mayo Clinic where I started working in a neuroscience department. And that was my first introduction to neuroscience. And I absolutely loved the research I was doing, where it was in neurodegenerative diseases, diseases that affect the brains and cause the cells to die. And really with an undertone of proteins that go bad and aggregate and then cause the cell to die to study that you know how does it happen why does it happen so that then we can figure out ways to stop it and there I had the opportunity to actually take classes as part of a master's program and realized this is what I would want to do a PhD in and so I started graduate school there at the Mayo Clinic and then my research mentor moved her laboratory from there to the University of Florida. And I loved the research I was doing. And I loved my mentor so much that I transferred then from one school to another to finish my degree. And the work that I did was hugely inspirational, loved discovering things. But at the end of it, I felt like I wanted to take a different path where I could feel like I was making an impact immediately in someone's life. Um, that I could help develop a treatment that could benefit someone in my lifetime. While, versus sometimes with research, you feel like you make discoveries, you find out how things work, but you don't see how that necessarily helps someone for years and years until someone else picks it up and they can use it for something. And so to that end, I then went to the University of North Carolina to do my postdoctoral training, and I joined the Gene Therapy Center that's there and joined Dr. Stephen Gray's laboratory, who specialized in developing gene therapies for rare pediatric disorders. And I just absolutely loved it.
0: So when did you stop saying pop and start saying soda? (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> I, I actually was never a pop person. You know, the Albany, New York area is less poppy, and more soda. <laughs> it's hysterical,
0: really hysterical. I love that you brought up this idea of research is someday. And what does it look like to actually bring something to the market? How do you develop a drug and in indication, a molecule? It could take years and years and years. Where did you land in reconciling your vested interest in the Maybe not someday, maybe sooner.
1: So when I joined Dr. Gray's laboratory, he had already been working on a rare disease that's called giant axonal neuropathy. And it's a disease that, you know, I think there are maybe 50 to 100 patients currently known. And so it's definitely very rare. And he had developed a gene therapy where you use a virus called an adeno-associated virus, this very small, generally harmless virus that he could use as a delivery vehicle to bring a working copy of the gene to a patient's cell. And he was working directly with a patient foundation, um, Hannah's Hope Foundation, where... Through now coming in on that project where they were starting to go through actually the regulatory steps to get approval to start a clinical trial at the NIH to test the treatment he had developed in his lab in the patients he was actively working with. It gave me the chance to meet the families, to actually meet the children with the disease and to really gain inspiration from their battles And seeing how I could actually help that. And so shortly after I joined that laboratory, they started the clinical trial and did the, to our knowledge, the first delivery of a virus like this into the cerebral spinal fluid of a patient so that the virus could go to their brain and to the spinal cord to deliver the gene therapy, and to try to help those cells. So it was really That's incredible. monumental, and we it, the trial is still ongoing. And so it's something that it, it doesn't stop just because you start a trial. You know, we can always improve on therapies, but it also gave me the opportunity to start them working on other rare diseases. And for those, we are at the point today where we're still seeking approval from the FDA to start a clinical trial to be able to then try to help those patients as well. And for several of these diseases, there is, I mean, for all the diseases that I've worked on so far for the rare pediatric disorders, there's no other option. You, There are medicines that can help with the symptoms, that can try to help improve some of the quality of life, but there's really nothing that addresses the root cause of the disease. And if you only deal with the symptoms, then you're not able to actually stop the progression or to try to halt it. And it just keeps going.
0: It's obviously, it's like blatantly obvious you love talking about this science. And, you know, I'm on the other side of the conversation where how do we ungeek the geek, right? Not calling you a geek per se, but this is like highbrow Lots of syllables, super science information. (laughs) And, you know, where is the Google translator down to the layperson patient that just needs to be maybe not afraid of the words trial or not afraid of the words gene therapy? It sounds like you're being manipulated into another type of creature or animal. And, you know, we talk about, like, as of this recording, vaccine hesitancy, but there's known gene therapy hesitancies. Where do you stand? you're very articulate in terms of talking person, or if you're in the lab, that's fine. You're talking amongst your cohorts. Where does this trickle down to the average person in terms of language?
1: So how do I break this down a little easier? (laughs) (laughs) So in talking about gene therapies, first you gotta understand genes. Genes are the blueprints for how our cells work. They are the forms of DNA that carry instructions that then make proteins, which is how our cell functions. It's how we do everything. So sometimes people are born with abnormalities in their genes so that it causes a disease because the instructions are faulty. So they can't make the proteins that their cells need. So when that happens, then that's where we have a hereditary disorder. There are other genetic disorders though that when genes become damaged over time, this can happen after certain environmental exposures like cigarette smoking uh, can cause cancer. That's other way that genetic disorders can happen. So the idea of gene therapy is to give a working copy of either DNA, which is the instructions, or RNA, which is the instructions from the DNA to the protein, if that makes sense, it's the intermediate. Um, to try to uh, give a cell a working copy so that it can make what it needs to function properly. And this is where we get into the idea of genetic medicine, which is another one of those kind of hype words that tend to be thrown out there is genetic medicine and precision medicine. And really, though, when you think about it, genetic medicine involves managing genetic disorders, So you're born with a mutation in your genes or you've gained mutations over time that cause a disease. And so we deliver a medicine that addresses that issue. And so that's how we can use then gene therapy to treat genetic disorders. And so gene therapy is just a way to introduce, remove, or modify genetic material that's already inside a patient's cells. And we call it precision when it's actually tailored to the person's actual genetic cause or their mutations. So a person has their gene sequenced, they find out they do have a mutation and this is what's underlying their disease. Well, if we can give them a copy of that gene that works properly, then they can make the protein they need and treat that symptom.
0: How would a patient of just normal average existence think to know, to ask that particular doctor at that moment, can you sequence my genes? Or is that just a known thing that every doctor already does or should do?
1: It actually is does not happen every time because there's not always a reason to it. It's not the cheapest procedure at this point. Although over time, it's becoming more and more cost-effective to be able to do like whole genome sequencing The other way that we think about it is typically by going by the symptoms. So they have different what they call panels now for different types of diseases. So, for example, if a child has epilepsy where they're having seizures, if there's not a known cause, the doctor can order what's called the epileptic panel where there are known genes that cause epilepsy, hereditary forms of epilepsy or they've gained a mutation over time that they were then born with, and then that causes this. So they can screen specifically for those genes to help narrow down the potential causes. And But that, you know, takes the doctor to ordering it. So part of what we work on, we being the larger science community, is also educating clinicians who are the doctors who see the patients that they should think about these as being causes, particularly in young children, where you see diseases that there's not really no causes. So it's becoming more commonplace, but it's definitely not the first thing that doctors typically look at, mostly for the cost, and not all insurance will cover it, and it varies from state to state.
0: Yeah, I can imagine the permutations that lie in the wake of even knowing it exists and getting access to it. So if if there's a really simple way to explain the difference between genetic therapy, like using your body's DNA to help you maybe live better or not die from something versus regular old medicine, what would it be?
1: So usually with gene therapy, the hope is that this is a one-time treatment, that because you're giving the blueprints, the DNA, to the cells so that they can make it itself, you only potentially need to treat a patient one time versus this having to be a treatment they take for the rest of their lives. So current medicine, oftentimes you take a pill every day for the rest of your life. With gene therapies where we use viral vectors for delivery, so- Wait,
0: wait, wait, you, jargon alert. What's a I viral know,
1: vector? I know, <laughs> So a vector is a vehicle that you use for delivery. You can think of it as your delivery truck. You put your gene inside of this delivery truck. You then put it into, say, your bloodstream. And it drives along and it goes to a neuron in your brain or a heart cell or a liver cell, wherever you're trying to direct it. And it goes there and it delivers your gene package to that cell. And it says, here's your DNA. Now use it and make your protein. So that's when we say vector, it's our delivery vehicle for the gene. So vectors are usually the most common are derived from viruses because viruses are very effective at getting into our cells, which we've seen um, from recent pandemics. Viruses know how to get into our cells. So we can take a virus and we can engineer it. We can take out the viral genes that a virus would normally use to make people sick or to make more of self, if itself, we can completely remove those and give it just the gene we want it to deliver and use it as our delivery truck. So it's almost like using an envelope to deliver a specific message. So once the envelope delivers the message, the message in size tells the instructions for how to get the cell to function, and then the envelope goes away. It can't make any more of itself. It's delivered and then your body breaks it down and gets rid of it. And so this is how we try to make gene therapy safe is by making our delivery vehicle so it cannot make any more of itself. And that's very different than the virus you get when you're outside and picking up germs from someone else.
0: Back with our guest after the break. Already, NordPod listeners, it's time to get ready for the 2021 Living Rare, Living Stronger Nord Patient and Family Forum, a virtual two-day program on June 26th and 27th, specifically designed for you, the rare disease community. So head on over to rarediseases.org today to sign up and prepare to join us for an inspirational weekend full of education, support, and community. That's rarediseases.org. Sun up today and we'll see you there. So again, going back to layperson and speaking human being. And it's so important that people in your position are able to talk this language. It's the language of science and data, but this idea of my genes and messing with them or putting the Amazon truck inside me to deliver this envelope, (laughs) you know, um, help me. People are going to ask, well, is gene therapy safe? And if you're using your body's own genetics for itself, Probably yes, but how do you answer that question to the average person?
1: Sure. So my answer to that would be gene therapy is not meant for every disorder. So, you know, I wouldn't propose to use gene therapy for hair loss. But when you're talking about a rare disease where there's very few treatment options and typically none and we're looking At children who are going to pass away early and not live a full and healthy life and possibly have very poor quality and even older individuals as well when we talk about the quality of life then the risks that are associated with viral vectors then become worth it it's a risk reward ratio just like it is For any pill that you would take. I think anytime you see a commercial, you see all the potential side effects and everything that can go wrong. Any medicine or treatment is not going to be without potential risk, but if you're talking about having a devastating disorder and knowing how it's going to end versus taking a treatment that when we talk about clinical trials, it's an experimental treatment to see how safe and effective it is for someone that for many it's worth it.
0: My favorite pharma commercials are the ones where the side effects cause the problem the drug's trying to fix. <laughs> yes. It's a new headache medicine may cause headaches.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah, that's why, you know, I guess in my opinion, I don't think gene therapy is for everything that affects every person, but for large for devastating diseases where there's nothing else than it actually holds incredible hope for patients, um, for helping to, you know, and I'm always cautious about using the word cure. And I think people should. I think people throw that up around fairly too often. And they're like We'll find a drug that cures it. I think we're not quite yet there. We're definitely not there yet. That's a future that we'd like to go to. But we're at a point of having treatments that make significant differences in patients' lives where they can live longer, they can have a much higher quality of life. And that's really what the promise of gene therapy is. And those are some of the successes that have been shown in clinical trials, as well as getting to approve gene therapies where now there are FDA approved gene therapies in the United States.
0: Yeah, I remember one year the FDA approved like seven drugs, and then the next year it was like 72 drugs. So there's definitely a wonderful new marketplace, if I can call it that, of products that do exactly what you're talking about. But I do want to interject. So now it is officially jargon time for the listeners of this show. I want to introduce the term market access to our listeners because this is how a bill becomes a law. This is how a miracle molecule that does this thing with your genes actually gets into the hands of the patient. What is your description of that?
1: So, the steps of how we develop gene therapies and then get them to market, it always starts with the preclinical studies, is what we call it, where there are researchers and scientists in a lab, such as myself, that we develop the idea for these drugs and then we engineer them. You know, they are biological drugs, so we engineer them. We have them made and then we test them in the laboratory. And in testing in the laboratory, sometimes we are able to use patient cells. Other times we have to use animal models of a disease, but we have to test it in something before we get to a human to show that it is as safe as we can make it, as well as there is some form of efficacy, something good that we expect to happen by someone taking this drug. And so those studies are done in the lab. And if those all look promising, then that's when we start shelling out much more money. And that's where you then approach the FDA to ask permission to be able to start a clinical trial and to ask what else would need to be done to get this drug to a clinical trial. And you provide them all the data you've generated to date to show them, this is how we think this is how the drug works. This is how we think it is safe. And this is how we think it will help patients. And also, if you're talking about starting clinical trial, you work with the doctors that then see patients for them to say, this is how we would propose to give them the drug. This is why we think it would be safe. And this is what we will look at to show that it helps them. And the FDA will review all this, and then they come back with saying, all right, you've done that, but now do these more rigorous studies. Or if we haven't shown their desire, the amount of benefit or safety, these are other studies you need to do. So then we go back and we do rigorous safety and toxicity studies. There are rigorous studies done on the drug itself to, again, look at safety and try to avoid negative side effects. And then again, we go back to the FDA with all this data evidence and massive application packets to say, this is what we have that we think we can start a clinical trial. So then if the FDA agrees that they think it could be safe and effective, they can approve the use in a clinical trial. So the clinical trial design between a rare disease and a standard everyday disease like headaches, not even diseases, is quite different When we talk about rare diseases, these are patient populations where usually there is 200,000 people or less with this disease that's within the United States. And frankly, for many of the rare diseases that we've been developing gene therapies for, we're talking about there being maybe 50 patients, maybe 100 patients with this disease where it's very rare. And so we have to structure our clinical trials different. We can't have these Follow the standard, usually phase one, phase two, phase three trials, where, you know, you enroll a small population for a phase one to show that it's safe. And then you do a bigger group of people for phase two to show there there's some benefit. And then a phase three would normally be a randomized, double blind, you know, people get placebo, other people don't. And you're talking now about hundreds to thousands of people. We can't do that for a rare disease because there's not enough patients. And so the FDA has now recognized different ways that we can um, develop clinical trials for rare disease, and as well as to give expedited pathways where we can accelerate approval. So instead of taking 10 to 20 years to develop a drug, it now can be done in maybe five years' time. Um, for diseases where we're talking about patients have no other options, and it's a devastating disease, this is a drug that could potentially have a significant impact on their life, that there are now different ways to test this in clinical trial.
0: So let's turn this to our listeners and educate them about how their voice matters in this important but complicated process. What can patients... And patient advocates do, I would say maybe not to demand that these drugs get to market more quickly, but they have to be done safely, help the listeners understand what they might be able to do today to accelerate this process on behalf of themselves and their own
1: respective communities. So I'd say for rare diseases, it's actually imperative that the patient population becomes involved because the funding for these programs needs to come from somewhere first off. And so if it's a rare disease, that's normally not being funded by like the federal government or something to develop a cure for maybe 50 people. So oftentimes the burden of the financial component, at least the initial part of it. So the beginning of the research program is often funded by families who do fundraising who raise awareness and bring in money and they then help fund scientists to start the development of these treatments. The other thing that's very important with our patients and our foundations is that then we think about finding partners. So the federal government does have grant applications that scientists can write to. And apply for to try to get funding to move these diseases forward now. And these are newer initiatives that have come out in the last few years, recognizing the burden of rare disease and how difficult it is to get drugs for it. The other option is to actually partner with industry. There are many pharmaceutical companies that do like to take on gene therapy programs that are promising, where, you know, if a foundation has funded the initial work to show, look, here's the drug. We think it will work. We think it's safe. Then they can partner with a pharmaceutical company that then says, okay, we will now step in and can supply the greater sum of funding that's needed to actually get to clinical trial to make the drug that's meant for use in patients because that's very expensive. And then we will help drive it towards approval. So it's in, so important that foundations actually support those efforts. And also with the rare disease program, oftentimes it's really not known the exact course of the disease, what we call the natural history. We know outwardly how some of the patients are, but when we're trying to show a drug is working, you need to provide readouts to the FDA that you show, okay, when the patient has this disease, it's called a biomarker. This biomarker is normally very high in the patient when they have a disease. With treatment, this then comes down, which then is also associated with that patient being healthier or having an improved quality of life. Um, so it gives us something to read out in clinical trials. And so just understanding a disease that's rare. Is what we need patients for to help come together to participate in natural history studies so that we can understand these diseases, so that we can then better treat them.
0: You hear that, folks? Your voice matters. Your activism matters. Your participation matters. Dr. Rachel Bailey, I'm going to get this right, the assistant professor of the Center for Alzheimer's and Neurodegenerative Diseases and Pediatrics at UT Southwestern Medical Center. I got that right, I think.
1: Yes, (laughs) you got it.
0: Lots of syllables, but totally worth it. Thank you so much for coming on NordPod today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. That's all for today. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Nordpod is a product of the National Organization for Rare Disorders and Offscript Media. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Leslie Nordstrom. Andrew McDowell is our senior producer. Valerie Don Francesco is our marketing manager. Darren Tunn is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary and the post-production team at Offscript Media. Our theme music is by The Salvatones. Learn more about the music of The Salvatones at salvatones.org. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit nordpod.org.